Well, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As you're making your way there, I want to just give one more quick announcement before we dive into God's Word. Um, The elders have graciously given me a sabbatical that's coming up. I just want to explain that. That's not because anything's wrong or anything is, is bad. It's actually a, a natural flow of something the elders put in place of several years ago uh, for all of the pastors of our sending church, Countryside Bible Church, and now Northlake Bible Church. After every five years, uh, we're a- eligible to receive a sabbatical. So mine is coming up in a couple of weeks. I'll be in the pulpit the next two Sundays, um, and then I'll be away for four Sundays. But just wanted to let you know we've got some great guys coming to preach the word of God to you, great worship leaders, everything will roll on just the same, and I'll be back before you know it and look forward to that, but didn't want you to be surprised when I was suddenly not here. Um, Nothing's wrong, everything's actually very, very good, and I'm loving what we're doing here at North Lake Bible Church. But with that said, let's look at God's word together back in Colossians chapter 3. You know, when we think of of athletes who have achieved great feats in their sport, we often think of them at their greatest moments. We think of someone like Nolan Ryan, and we remember his amazing fastball and the numerous no-hitters that he threw. We think of Michael Phelps as the one who's earned the most individual medals by any of any other athlete in the Olympics. Or Tiger Woods as the great golfer who would run away at at the Masters on Sunday and win by an incredible margin. But what we may not realize is that each of these athletes have behind their greatness a a personal commitment and mastery of several fundamental practices that are basic to their sport. Think about it this way. When you go to a professional sporting event, no matter what it is, if you get there early enough and watch the players warming up, what are the things they're doing? Often they're practicing the most basic skills needed for their sport. If you get there early for a baseball game, the infielders are are taking ground balls and the outfielders are catching fly balls. If you go early to a football game, they're wearing shorts and a t-shirt but running routes, maybe at half speed, and quarterbacks are practicing their steps as they drop back to throw the ball. Oftentimes, they do this in slow, exaggerated motions, practicing the the technique to make sure they're doing it just right. Why? Why are these professional athletes who are the best in the world at what they do warming up the same way that five-year-olds do for their t-ball game? It's because greatness in any activity demands that a person master the fundamental skills necessary for that activity. The same is true in the Christian life. I've explained this concept many times before and will continue to do so because we have to have it burned in our minds. Maturity in the Christian life is not found in some secret knowledge or formula that's reserved only for a few. Instead, true spiritual maturity comes when by the power of the Holy Spirit we commit ourselves to living out the basic commands of Scripture. We commit ourselves to putting on the basic virtues in our character that mimic the character of Christ. The commands of Scripture are universally applicable to every single Christian, and yet only those who take this seriously of putting off sin, renewing their mind with the truth, and putting on righteousness will actually grow in their faith. That's because real spiritual maturity 
is being able to live out the basic truths of Scripture no matter what circumstance you're facing in life. In our text today, we enter into a new section in Colossians chapter 3. It's really the final section of verses 1 to 17 that we've been looking at now for a few months. And in verses 15 to 17, Paul's going to give us four fundamental commitments that we must commit ourselves to. But before we look at those, let me just quickly give you the structure of where we've been in the past. In case you're new and haven't been with us, we've been looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. And we've seen this breaks down into two basic sections. The Christian perspective, how we're to think about life in the world, in verses 1 to 4. And then secondly, the Christian life in verses 5 to 17, where we've been now for several weeks. We are to mortify sin, that is, put sin to death, and pursue righteousness. And the process that Paul has given us to do that is simple. Three simple steps of putting off sin, renewing our mind with the truth of Scripture, and then putting on righteousness. Let's look together, beginning in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3, and read down through verse 17. Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've been developing one simple theme through this chapter, and it's this. Every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. We're now in that section on pursuing righteousness and how we put on the Lord Jesus Christ in our life and our attitudes. We've seen that the motivation for putting on righteousness is our identity in Christ. Paul says, if you're a Christian this morning, then here are three descriptions that are true of you. He says, first of all, we are chosen. We are those whom God has set his love upon. We are holy and beloved. Based on that, he gives us the command to put on righteousness because God has done this work in your life as an overflow of the work of Christ and your gratitude towards him. Put on righteousness. And remember, he gave us five specific virtues that are to describe us that we're to put on in the Christian life. They were heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he says, for those who do these things, there will be two inevitable fruits in their life, two things that happen in the life of those people and in the church. The first fruit is a church that bears, that bears with one another. And secondly, will be a church that forgives. Finally, Paul gave us one essential virtue, the virtue of love that really ties all of us together as we continue to pursue Christ and Christian maturity. 
But today, as I said, we now enter into this final section in verses 15 to 17, and we'll see four fundamental commitments for every believer. We'll see two today and then the rest in the coming weeks. But in verse 15, he gives us the first two of these commitments. The first commitment is this, be controlled by peace. Be controlled by peace. Look at Colossians 3, verse 15. Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, there's so much for us to unpack in just these few words. First of all, notice that this is a command. Let the peace rule is the command. Let it rule. And it's a passive command, which means it's something that God does to us. Let the peace of Christ rule. The way that we cooperate with God is by pursuing this with our maximum effort, realizing that it must be God who actually produces this in our lives. Now, that word rule is a very fascinating word. Here's the definition. It simply means to be in control of someone's activity by making a decision. So it could be translated be judge or decide, control, or rule. But what's interesting is that this word was originally used to refer to an umpire or referee in an athletic competition. Remember, just as today, then, so then, the umpire functions as an arbitrator between players and teams to make sure that everyone plays by the rules so that the game is done fairly. In the same way, Paul says that we are to be ruled or controlled by something very specific. The arbitrator in our Christian lives, the dominating influence is to be, Paul says, the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. Now, obviously, if we're going to understand what he means here, we've got to drill down on this phrase, the peace of Christ. The, the whole verse hinges on us understanding what he's referring to. And so we're going to take a deep dive into this idea of peace. Because let's be honest, I think when most Christians hear this word peace, our thoughts run to some kind of idea of inner tranquility, a sense of peace on the inside. And certainly there is an aspect of truth to that in this word, but it's so much more than Paul just commanding us to be at rest on the inside. It gets down to the heart of, of how and why. How can we be at peace on the inside? What is the, the thing that produces this inner tranquility of the soul? In fact, a, a basic definition of the, the Greek word is simply a state of well-being. A state of well-being. But if we're going to be in this peace or state of well-being, we have to understand how we get there. Jesus intended for his peace to be a key part of the Christian life. We see this in John 14, 27. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be fearful. Notice that curious word, my. It says, my peace. I give to you. Jesus says that there is a peace that belongs to him that he's able to distribute to those whom he desires. And this is the same peace that Paul is describing in our text when he tells us to be ruled by 
the peace of Christ. Notice that's why Paul calls it the peace of Christ. That is, Christ owns it. It's his, and he sovereignly gives it to his people. Now, to really get the idea of what peace means here, we have to go back and understand a little bit about how the Jews thought about peace. Because this idea of peace stretches way back beyond John 14 and Colossians 3. The Hebrew word for peace is probably one of the Hebrew words you know. It's the word shalom. If you go to Israel today, you will hear and say shalom all day long because it's a greeting. Shalom. For the Jewish culture, the experience of peace was the ultimate sign of God's blessing. Think about the Old Covenant for a moment. Remember that in the Old Covenant that God made with Israel, the promise was that if they obeyed God, they would experience His blessing. Or another way to say that is they would experience shalom. They would experience this sense of well-being on a number of fronts. If they obeyed God's commands, they would have peace with God Himself. They would have peace in their community as a people. And they would even have peace with their enemies, rest from war. And so peace, shalom, became a huge driving influence for the Jewish people. Not only that, but there are promises in the Old Testament that that look into the future. And because of that, the Jews were looking forward to the Messiah coming because the Messiah was the one who would bring ultimate peace, universal peace, lasting peace. This is what they understood the Messiah in his role to be. Think about Zechariah chapter 9, for example. This is one of those prophecies. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What's he describing there? That verse 9 is pretty familiar because we recognize that prophecy of Jesus riding in on a donkey. But verse 10 says that the Messiah will also usher in worldwide peace across all nations. Not to mention Isaiah chapter 9, another prophecy we're familiar with. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. What does that mean? He'll be a ruler. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so you see, with good reason, the Jews were anticipating a Messiah who would come and be a physical ruler who would usher in true and lasting peace. In fact, many of the Jews today still stumble over Jesus as the Messiah because of this issue of peace. When I was in Israel, I asked our Jewish guide, why is it that you reject Jesus as the Messiah? And he said, because he did not bring world peace. That was his answer. The Jews are still tripping over this idea, just as they did then. 
But what's going on here? We have these clear passages in the Old Testament that say that the Messiah will bring peace. And we have Jesus himself saying to his disciples on the night before his death, I give you my peace. And now we have Paul commanding us to be ruled by this peace. So what is this mysterious peace? To understand it, we have to understand that we as human beings need peace on two different planes. We need peace, first of all, among ourselves. As sinners, we sin against one another. We often harm one another. We see in the, in the news all the time of despicable acts that are committed against other human beings. There is no lasting peace among us as human beings. But secondly, we need peace in another way that's even more important than peace among ourselves. We are in desperate need of peace with God. We need peace between God and man. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come and accomplish both. He would accomplish ultimate, eternal, lasting peace among men, between men, and he would also accomplish this peace between God and man. But here's the key. Nowhere does it say that he will accomplish both at the same time. The Jews of Jesus' day and even the Jews of today are clinging to passages like Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 9 while ignoring passages like the one we began with in Isaiah 53. For there are also clear prophecies in the same book that this Messiah would also come to die. That he would come to pay for the sins of his people with his own blood. Of course, this is necessary because we as human beings, since the fall of Adam and Eve, live in hostility towards God and vice versa. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse, uh, verses we read all the time. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And listen to the result of that in verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? Of wrath, even as the rest. What does it mean we're children of wrath? It means that we lived in this state with God where there was no peace. Instead, there was hostility where we were under the wrath of God, that if God had chosen to take our lives, all that would be left for us would be eternal wrath. Fallen humanity, even today, is obsessed with fixing and procuring peace among men while all the while living under the hostility of the wrath of God. Understand that world peace can never happen unless mankind is first at peace with God. Divine peace had to come first. We have to be made right with God before we can be made right with one another. And now we're getting to the heart of this glorious peace that Paul says must rule in our Christian lives. Because what he means is that this is the peace of Christ that he purchased for his people with his own blood. It's a state of well-being that's true of every Christian because they have a right relationship with God through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus has purchased this peace that we need between us and God. 
And in addition to that, he has given us the promise that if we're in him, that we already have citizenship in the coming kingdom in which true peace will rule on this earth. And so he takes care of both. One in the present tense and one as a promise and guarantee for the future. But both expectations of peace are met and by the person of Jesus Christ. This is eternal peace between sinful man and holy God. So that every repentant sinner who places their faith in Christ alone for salvation will be a recipient of this peace. This is why the angels proclaimed that peace had come on the night that Christ was born. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Don't miss that last phrase, with whom he is pleased. That is, peace is coming through this child for everyone who comes to God through him for salvation. It is true that Jesus will fulfill all of the prophecies made about him. And one day there will be lasting eternal peace. And he will rule as a real ruler. But that has not yet come. But what has come so that we know that we can trust that that will come is peace with God. The peace that we have through Christ with God is here and now. So if you're a Christian... You have the peace of Christ, which is a state of spiritual well-being because you've been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and have received citizenship in his coming earthly kingdom. But now Paul commands that we let that peace of Christ rule, that we let it control. So now that we have an understanding of the peace itself, how in the world... Do we allow that reality to rule in our hearts? Well, think of it this way. If we are the recipients of the eternal peace of God and we have a guaranteed citizenship in his coming kingdom, then what earthly circumstance could possibly shake us? What trial or difficulty can really ever shake us if we're consistently renewing our mind with the reality that we belong to the sovereign God of the universe and he is one day going to bring us to be with him forever? What can man do to you if you're in Christ? Take your possessions, take your loved ones, take your life. Listen, as hard as those losses might be, at the end of the day, they are all temporary. Man can never take one inch of your spiritual eternal security that Christ has purchased. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who will kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Once Christ has taken care of the eternal reality of our salvation, all that man can do to you is take your physical life. But man can never affect your eternal reality. Notice the realm in which the peace of Christ is to reign. He says, let it reign in your hearts. In your hearts. The word your here is plural. In Texas we would say, in y'all's hearts, right? 
in all of your hearts. As a congregation, as a church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts collectively as a body of Christ. See, Paul recognizes that our outward circumstances will often be anything but peaceful. But he says, on the inside, in your heart, even now, the peace of Christ can rule. Paul says that your outward circumstances may be full of trials, full of difficulties, full of the pain of sins committed against you. But in the midst of those things, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ act as an umpire, governing your thoughts and responses to the circumstances of life. When you're tempted to think sinfully towards others or towards God because of the difficulty of your circumstances, Paul says, let the peace of Christ be ruler. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. See, the well-being that Christ has purchased for you can reign in your heart so that you are like a lighthouse planted firmly at the edge of the sea. Though the winds and the waves rage against you unceasingly, you can stand and let the light of Christ shine so that others who are out there on the waves of the ocean, still battered and tossed by their sin, can see the light of the gospel And we can stand like a lighthouse in the midst of the storm that says, come and find rest for your souls. Come and know this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has purchased for us a true and right relationship with God so that in the midst of the storms of life, we can be ruled by his peace. But see, if the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts, then we've got to become equipped And mature in the process of change, of practicing, putting off, renewing our mind and putting on. You see, we have to choose moment by moment to put off every temptation towards worry and anxiety, anger and fear. And renew our mind with the truths that we've been discussing this morning. And allow the peace of Christ then to produce in us trust and faith and perseverance and hope. That's what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So you compare every difficulty that you have, every trial, against the riches of what you have in Christ. And you see how they pale in comparison. You remind yourself, I am his and he is mine and this world is not my home. I have a citizenship in a coming kingdom where there will be no sin, where righteousness will rule. No more death, no more pain. And the result of renewing your mind like that is that you will walk in trust and faith with an inner sense of well-being that's rooted in Christ himself. This is why Paul explains to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 that this is a key part of fighting the sin of anxiety. He says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the result. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, many people long for a sense of inner peace, but they try to obtain it by unbiblical means. Maybe they try to count to ten. Or take three deep breaths. 
or some mystical form of meditation where they try to get alone and empty their mind of all conscious thought. But see, what Paul is calling us to here in Colossians chapter 3 is that if you want to live in the peace of Christ, you have to go to war. Go to war with your flesh. Go to war with every temptation. Put it off. Renew your mind and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the peace of Christ will rule in your hearts. Many of you know the story of a man named Horatio G. Spafford. He was a successful Christian businessman who lived in the late 1800s. In 1871, his wife and four daughters boarded a ship bound for Europe. Horatio had some business to attend to before being able to join them, and so he was taking another ship later that week. But sadly, during the journey, this ship that had his wife and kids on it ran into another ship, and the ship sank, killing 226 people, including his four daughters. His wife survived the tragedy and sent him a telegram that simply read, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately boarded the next boat that he could get on to go and be with his grieving wife. And on that journey, he wrote the words to the now famous hymn, It is well with my soul. I want you to listen to the words of this hymn, and I want you to see the connection that Horatio made because he must have been dwelling upon the truths that we're thinking on today in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to these familiar words. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance Control, listen to that word, let it rule that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Do you see what Horatio is doing? When his grief hits him like a wave in the face and knocks him down, he turns his mind to these two great realities. My sins have been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ, and one day he's coming again to bring me to be where he is. And therefore I can say, it is well with my soul. That's what it looks like to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. We give our maximum effort towards these things when we put off every temptation, renew our minds and put on truth. But we can't forget that Paul has not abandoned his original context here that we've been looking at now for several weeks. Paul's been instructing us on how to live out our faith as a community, how to live together in harmony and unity as a church. And that's still on his mind here. And so now he takes this command and he begins to apply it in a very specific way. Look back at verse 15. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, to which indeed you were called. 
This is a specific application. He's now turning and talking about how the peace of Christ is not only to rule in our hearts, but it's to affect the way we treat each other in the church. When he says that to this we were called, he's referring to the effectual call of salvation. That's another way of saying we were called in salvation. We see the word used this way in Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for, those, for the good of those who love God to those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So what Paul is saying to us is that when God called you to salvation through the gospel... He not only called you to be one who experiences the peace of Christ, but who extends the peace of Christ. Who lives it out in your relationship with others in the church. He has extended peace to us in his son, and we're to extend peace to one another on the same basis. This is a wonderful call to unity and peace in our relationships with one another in the church so that while, think of it this way, while Christ has not yet returned to set up his earthly kingdom, there is a sense in which, even now, as Christ rules in each of our hearts, we should be getting a glimpse of what life will look like by the way the church acts towards one another. Not in perfection, but in direction. As we allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, and then we treat each other on that basis, the harmony and unity that will one day be perfectly a characterization of Christ's rule, should be showing up in our body and how we love and treat and serve one another. While we will never reach perfection, certainly in our relationships with one another, we should seek to grow to maturity. And as we grow in maturity, that should affect the way that we treat one another in the church. This is a reminder, by the way, that true peace and harmony among human beings cannot be procured through worldly means. Right now, our world is desperately trying to create a system of unity and justice and harmony in our country that will solve all of the sinful issues that surround us. But they're doing it through the means of the doctrines of demons, as Paul calls them. Trying to employ ideas such as critical race theory or intersectionality as if those things will promote true human flourishing. Understand, what Paul says is that the church should be the place where we see true human flourishing in relationships because the church is a group of people who have been saved and are ruled by the peace of Christ so that in the church we can see the kind of harmony and unity and love and care that is meant for God's people. You see, the world should look in on our fellowship and scratch their head because we should be a community of people, as we've been talking about, from all different backgrounds who look differently and, and have different cultures, and yet we come together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world should say, how is that possible? The answer is because of Christ. Because when he saves us, he transforms us, and that transforms the way we see not only him but one another. The peace of Christ then becomes something that affects the, the body life of the church 
And, and that changes the culture and, and how we treat one another, and that becomes a means for the gospel as well. And Paul says this is demonstrated in the fact that we are now in one body. God has called us in one body. He's saying God's given us the illustration of how we are to act towards one another because we are intricately connected, saved into the same body, baptized into that body by the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. Our task then is to grow in our maturity in the faith so that the spiritual reality of who we are in Christ becomes the physical reality in the church. See, when the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, it affects our ability to live out the commands we've been studying in the past few weeks. When your heart is ruled by the peace of Christ, you bear with other people in the church. When your heart is ruled by the peace of Christ, you cover their sins with love. You see how it affects everything that we've been saying. I think it's important for us to realize that our sense of well-being, our sense of peace, cannot be dependent upon how we're treated by other people. It's not dependent on how you treat me or think of me. It's dependent upon how Christ has treated me. You see, when we start thinking like that, we, we stop living for the fear of man and we start living for the fear of God. That I can love you even when you sin against me because it's not about you and me. It's about what God has done for me in Christ. It transforms us. But this commitment to be ruled by the peace of Christ goes hand in hand with the second commitment that we see here in this verse. And it's commitment number two, be committed to gratitude. Be committed to gratitude. Not only should we be controlled by peace, Paul says, be committed to gratitude. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And be thankful. This is a second command from Paul. It's to be the regular, natural overflow of a heart ruled by the peace of Christ. To be thankful. To be filled with gratitude. And understand, this is not a random command from Paul. It ties in perfectly with this idea of being ruled by the peace of Christ. When you and I are faithfully renewing our minds with the riches of what God has done towards us in Christ, it should produce an overflow of gratitude. Remember in the verses we just read a moment ago in Philippians chapter 4, notice how gratitude shows up there in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You see this connection between peace and thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when we're tempted towards anxiety, we're not only to pray to God, but to pray with thanksgiving. The reason is anxiety, the sin of anxiety, is often rooted in the sin of discontentment. When our focus is on the things that we don't have or when our life is not going the way that we wish it would or when we're w worried that it won't go the way that we wish it would, we become discontent and therefore we become anxious. The cure then is to come to God in prayer intentionally giving him thanks for the myriad of ways that he has blessed us. And what is the chief way that God has blessed us if we're in Christ? salvation through his son 
He's made us right with God. And now we're right back in this pattern of dwelling upon what God has done for us in Christ, which produces the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, which overflows with gratitude. In fact, thank, thankfulness is a key idea in Paul's mind in Colossians chapter 3, and it's going to show up again in the next two verses, as we'll see. Listen to Colossians three sixteen and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving Thanks through him to God the Father. Understand that what Paul is saying is that thanksgiving is basic Christianity. This is basic. This is foundational to being a Christian. It's what a Christian is. In fact, the opposite is also true. Paul says to the, to the Romans that it's basic or foundational of unbelievers to lack gratitude. Remember Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now verse 21, for even though they knew God, that is, it was obvious to them that God existed. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. This is characteristic of every unbeliever. What this means then is that thankfulness becomes a test for how faithfully we're pursuing the peace of Christ. If you want to test whether or not your heart is currently ruled by the peace of Christ, then just ask yourself, is my life more a pattern of gratitude or discontentment? Because a heart ruled by the peace of Christ overflows with gratitude towards God because it's consumed with the fact that we have been saved by the grace of God in Christ. In fact, perhaps you're here this morning, and if you're honest, you're a person who is characterized by anger and discontentment with your life. Maybe you're here, and the only thing that you ever see in your life are the things that aren't going according to plan, the things that aren't measuring up to your standards. No gift is good enough, no possessions can please you, and no one in your home can seem to ever do things the right way. Life is just not up to your expectations. Understand that if that perspective characterizes your life, if that is the dominating characterization of your life, it may very well be that you've never come to truly know the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Because once Jesus Christ changes your life through the gospel, it changes everything. Your entire perspective on life begins to change because you realize suddenly that in Christ I have something of, of incalculable value and worth. Something so valuable that nothing else in this life really matters when compared with it. When you become a true believer, you begin to think this way. Listen to how Paul thought about his life once he came to Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss... For the sake of Christ, 
More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, if you've never come to view your life this way, where everything else compared to Christ is really just trash, that, you know what, take it all away. That's not to discount the wonderful relationships we're able to have in this life and even the enjoyment of possessions and things that God gives us. But when we begin to compare those things to Christ, those things should quickly fade away. Understand that Paul's just declared that for those who are in Christ, it is basic and foundational to be a person who is thankful. That gratitude will overflow because of the reality of Christ in our life. But if you're in Christ this morning and you're confident that you know him, it's important for us to make sure that we apply these two commands to our daily lives. So let me encourage you, as Paul has, first of all, to be controlled by Christ's peace. Be controlled by Christ's peace. When you're faced with the trials and difficulties of life and the pain of others' sin against you, what happens in your heart and mind? Do you dwell on your circumstance and rehearse the pain over and over and over again? Are you captivated by, captivated by just how unjust someone's offense is against you? Or instead, do you turn your mind to the riches of grace that you've received in Christ so that you're overwhelmed with how much God has blessed you and suddenly those trials and circumstances and offenses fade away? Do you dwell upon the fact that the world's not our home but we are already citizens of a coming eternal kingdom in which righteousness will dwell. If we're to be a people ruled by peace, if we're to be a church ruled by the peace of Christ, then we have to be careful to shepherd our thoughts with these great realities that we have all we need in Christ and one day all will be made right. That secondly, let me encourage you as Paul has to be committed to giving thanks. Be committed to giving thanks. Let me ask you, is your, your glass always half empty? Do you struggle with preoccupying your mind with all the things that you don't have or wish were different? Understand that the Christian mind is to be ruled by the peace of Christ, and as Paul said, that is to produce gratitude. Let me encourage all of us, as I've encouraged myself this week, to go to war with discontentment. Go to war with it. The way you win the battle with discontentment is, is by committing yourself to the practice of every single time your mind is tempted to dwell on something you don't have or wish was different, the very moment it comes into your mind, you cut it down, you put it off, put it out of your mind, and make your mind focus on these realities of what we have in Christ, and then walk in gratitude. Begin to actually say out loud to God in prayer things you're thankful for. Look around the room. If you can't think of anything, start with Christ and then go to the fact that your heart is beating and that you have breath in your lungs and suddenly you'll begin to see that Christ has blessed you richly and the only reason you're even living right now 
is because of the grace of God in your life. Turn your perspective to gratitude and walk in peace. You know, it's my prayer that North Lake Bible Church would be a church filled with people, ruled by the peace of Christ, and that that will transform the way that we think of one another and treat one another, and that we will be like a lighthouse, shining the gospel to a lost world, that they might come and have rest for their souls in the only place it can be found, the perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, it's, it's our heart's desire to think and live this way, to be controlled by the peace that you have purchased with your own blood, to be controlled by the realization that in Christ we have all that we need and then some, that we belong to you, that we have a right relationship with you, and that one day we will be a part of your eternal kingdom. God, help us to dwell on these things, to be transformed by these things. And may they be characteristic of not only who we are as individuals, but who we are as a church. We recognize that in your sovereignty, you often bring trials into our life, but not intended for our harm, but for our spiritual good. May we never forget that. That you are always with us, no matter how dark the days may grow, no matter how stormy the, the waves of the sea may become. We can stand firm in Christ because he is truly all we need. May we have this perspective every day of our lives and may it open up opportunities to share the good news of Christ with others. We ask it in his perfect name. Amen.